We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Through 36. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, their beloved, for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned to all disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Well, good morning. Hope you're all doing well on this beautiful spring morning, at least hope it's spring. Uh, please allow me to introduce myself uh, on behalf of anyone who uh, ha- haven't had the privilege of meeting yet. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. I would like to extend a welcome to you all on behalf of the pastors in, the, in this body of Emmaus, particularly to the visitors with us. Hopefully you've already felt that welcome. Uh, after the service, I want to extend an invite to you. Nothing formal or anything, but uh, we'd love for you to stick around a little bit after the services and uh, meet us at our Connect table out in the lobby. Uh, just give us a chance to get to know you a little bit better, answer any questions you might have about us, and uh, we would love to just uh, hear your story a little bit more and uh, get to know you. So, uh, Amaze members, it's always a joy to see you. It is a privilege. I don't take lightly to be able to uh, journey with you and uh, gather together with you in worship of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ this morning. Um, I wanted to say a, a quick word on behalf. I know this is something that has been stated from the pulpit already, but uh, I was uh, talking with a, a faithful uh, believer from another body uh, earlier this week, and we were talking about, uh, I don't remember how the conversation really came up, but we were talking about missional giving. And uh, they were expressing to me their encouragement that they had um, in uh, how they had asked their people to really take a step forward in their generosity uh, towards giving, towards missions. And uh, again, it definitely is not a competition. I don't want to put it across that way. But uh, when they told me the amount that this church is a little more established than we are, had given, uh, I was just really encouraged by the generosity that uh, you all had shown earlier this year with uh, um, the missional offering that we took in and uh, I just wanted to say thank you so much uh, on behalf of this church uh, for, for stepping out, some of you even outside of comfort zones, and, and giving um, out of your uh, abundance, but also some of you giving to the point where it hurt in a way that I think the Lord's truly going to use to allow us to uh, bring him glory here in Kansas City and uh, all over the world. So I just wanted to take another moment to just publicly encourage you and thank you for your generosity in that, in that process. 
speaking of our uh, missional giving and service, uh, as many of you know, we, we exist here at Emmaus to see God glorified, churches multiplied through the uh, declaring and displaying of the gospel. And one of the ways we see that uh, being done through us is by helping and training pastors. And so I wanted to make an announcement slash invite you all to pray with me this week as uh, our year three residents uh, within our pastoral resident men who have been training uh, for the office of pastor under us. They've been faithfully serving this body as fellow members, but they've also been training and honing their theological precision, their ability to preach, their doctrinal fidelity, their church um, leadership. They've been doing all these things for the last 27 months. And on Monday night, they're actually meeting for the last time uh, with our pastors before, for many of whom, uh, they'll be graduating from Midwestern, uh, finishing this program, and many of them are going to be uh, both joyfully but sorrowfully sent out from us. In fact, a couple of them have already been sent uh, quite literally all over the world. So I uh, just wanted to take a moment to ask you guys to be in prayer for these men, their wives, their families, as they prepare to uh, conclude the sweet season that they've had in our midst. Probably many of them you know uh, personally and have been around. So uh, I invite you guys to join me in praying for them now, but also praying for them as they prepare for that final meeting this week, that the Lord would just continue to sharpen within them uh, his plan that he has for them. So. Uh, every time we open up the Word of God, there's a weightiness to it uh, that I don't take lightly. I think probably most of us would agree. Many passages we've come across the last several weeks in, in this section that we find ourselves in the book of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, have presented some very particularly weighty and challenging passages. So uh, as we come to the conclusion of this, uh, I think we have a message that is quite hopeful and joyful, and I'm, I'm excited to proclaim it uh, on behalf of us this morning. So before we do that, though, let's bow for prayer. Uh, let's pray that the Lord would be with us in this time, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we lift high your name. We recognize that you are great. We pray that your name would be lifted high during this time. Lord, it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we come before you, the only mediator between God and man. Lord Christ, the righteous one who has laid down his life for sinners, Lord, we, we cling to him today, Lord. We pray that as we come into this time, Lord, the words that we have read and sang, the word that will be preached to us, Lord, I pray that it would serve to stir the affections of this people for Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that those who are currently walking in rebellion, Lord, would be drawn near by the sweetness of the gospel, Lord, to the to the Christian who finds himself stagnant or backslidden, Lord, that their affections would be warmed again to Christ, Lord, to the, to the saints in this room, that greater faithfulness would come through the proclamation of your word, Lord. Lord, we rely on Spirit, you to take care of this for us, that you would apply the word to our hearts in a way that we ourselves cannot do, Lord, that you would magnify the word, and that you would bring about change and joy in Christ in our lives as a result of it. Lord, we want to lift high your name. Lord, I thank you for the men among us, these pastors in training, these dear brothers and their families who have committed to faithfully love and be a part of this body while also training and preparing that they might be sent out to, Lord, to shepherd your church in places all around the world. Lord, I, I count it a dear joy to consider these brothers friends fellow laborers in the gospel. And Lord, I pray that you would just even now be, 
be with their families. I pray that you would give them a sharpening of their calling, Lord, that you would hedge in them a desire to proclaim Christ crucified amongst the nations. Lord, I pray that you would guard them from uh, outside influence. Lord, that you would guard them from backsliding. Lord, that you would guard them from fear. And Lord, that you would protect their families and continue to strengthen within them a ironclad resolve to uh, proclaim Christ crucified wherever you might send them, Lord, and to faithfully shepherd the people that you have already prepared to place under their care, Lord. Pray that you would help us as a body of Emmaus to continue to care well for them, even as they move and transition into this time, Lord. Lord, be with us as we open your word. We trust that it's able to do that which we cannot merely conjure up in our own selves, Lord, but we we trust that you can give us hearts um, that love Christ more as a result of it. So I pray you would do that in this time. Be with us now, even as as we come into your word. In your name I pray, amen. Well, Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, often used the mechanism of stories to communicate spiritual realities. In fact, we see so often stories have a way of sneaking past the defenses that we have set up in our minds and hitting us with the truth in ways that we least expected them to do. Uh, Oftentimes, these stories are known as parables, and perhaps maybe the most famous parable Christ ever told is one oft called the parable of the prodigal son. I suppose there's many people in the room who are familiar with this story, but uh, for the sake of those who haven't heard it, as a reminder, I'd like to share that parable with you uh, to begin our time today. So as the story goes, there was a man, a father, who had two sons. Uh, He was a wealthy man with a, a large farm and an inheritance. And we see that at the beginning of our story, his youngest son comes to him and he says, Father, I'm ready to leave this place. I want you to give me my inheritance now. In effect, what this son is telling the father is, you're dead to me. I want to cut off the relationships we have. All I want is the blessings of the inheritance. So we see the father obliges him. He gives him his inheritance, and he sends his youngest son on his way. And as the story goes, we find quickly that the youngest son finds himself in a foreign land in which he quickly begins to become enticed by the entrapments and licentiousness of the world. We see he begins to squander this money on everything from spirited drinks to gambling to uh, inappropriate relations with others, shall we say. And quickly we find this man, as these things tend to happen, he finds himself quite literally at rock bottom. The joys and the temporary bliss of these things no longer satisfy. The money with which he was using to entice them are no longer there. And he finds himself as a beggar. And in fact, it's at his moment of rock bottom where he finds himself sneaking onto a farm and eating pig's food out of a trough that it dawns upon him. That even the lowliest person in his father's house has it better than he's got it. So he commits in his mind that he's going to go back to his father. He realizes that this relationship has been permanently severed. There's no way to restore it. But he thinks to himself, maybe, just maybe, I can show up and he'll hire me as a servant. For the crumbs from his table are like steak compared to where I'm at now. So he rehearses this in his mind. He's walking back to his home and he he prepares to approach his father and say, Father, I have sinned against you. I have no right as your son anymore. Will you hire me as a servant? He has this all planned out. And yet we see this isn't what happens. Where you see the father is waiting for him to return. 
The father sees him on the horizon coming forth, and in his great excitement, the father runs to him. As he's preparing this spiel, he's about to repeat it, and the father ignores it totally. He wraps his arms around the son, and he calls upon his servants to bring out fine clothes for this man. And he says, kill the fattened calf. Prepare for we're going to party tonight. For my son who was lost has been found and drawn near. Perhaps for most of us as we've heard this story, our heart resonates towards this man. This story pricks something inside of us as we hear this. However, if we remember, this was not the only son that this father has. And we see while everyone else is rejoicing and preparing a feast for this occasion, we see that there is one person who's not excited, this older brother. You see, he returns and he sees the atmosphere, the party that's getting ready to happen, and he says, what in the world is going on? One of the servants tells him, your brother's returned. Your father has ordered us to kill the fattened calf. We're having a feast to celebrate it. Rather than embracing his father's joy, he becomes furious, and he refuses to go inside. The father, hearing this has happened, goes out to his son. And he says, son, come in and join the festival. Come in and enjoy the blessings of my house. And the older son, embittered and angry at the father, says, how dare you? When I've been with you this whole time, and I've served you faithfully, you didn't throw a party for me. Instead, you're throwing a party for this son of yours who squandered all your money on concubines, prostitutes, and gambling. And the father says, son, your brother was lost and he has been found. We have to celebrate. And we see this parable ends as a cliffhanger. In fact, this is certainly not new to me. Many scholars have suggested that this parable was actually not aimed at the younger brother in the audience. But it's actually aimed at this older brother. It's Jesus' way of inviting them to say, come and receive my blessing. You don't earn it. You can't twist my arm and make me do things that you want me to do. You come to me the same way your younger brother came, through grace. And friends, as we have studied in this passage, particularly chapter 11 last week and this week, we have seen that our current scenario mimics this parable. For you see, like the younger brother, the Gentiles had rebelled against God the Father and had pursued hope and life and peace through the licentiousness of this world, and yet God in His kindness has chosen to draw them near in Jesus Christ. And yet we see in doing so, a hardness has become upon the older brother, the Israelites. A hardness has come upon them, for you see, they believe themselves to have earned God's favor through their ethnic lineage, through their acts of piety, that God owes them. And friends, the tragic reality is, is because of that, they stand outside the party, just as the older brother did. But friends, the joy of our passage we have in front of us today, and what we have the opportunity to see in front of us today, it's that God, through Jesus Christ, has every intention of saving both the younger brother and the older brother. Friends, this is the joy of the passage that's in front of us today. Uh, as you've noticed throughout the book of Romans, we've come face to face with the reality that God's salvific plan 
is accomplished through Jesus Christ alone, through his life, death, and resurrection, through the person work of Christ. There is no law or righteousness before God apart from him. And friends, in light of this reality, as Paul has been working his way through the passages, he astutely observed last week this question, what then of the Israelites? This promised people that you set aside in the Old Testament, what is to become of them? Have they been scorned and rejected? Will they somehow get rollover bonus points apart from Christ Jesus? The answer to those is no, to both. But we see by God's grace and his great manifold wisdom and mystery that God intends to bring both the Gentile and the Jew together in Christ Jesus. He has every intention of saving both. So friends, we're going to be looking at that today. And we're going to see how we can respond to this great mystery. How we should respond as a people to this glorious salvation. So let's go ahead and get started in our text, uh, starting in verses 25 through 27. If you haven't turned there yet, feel free to do so, and, uh, and we'll begin looking at this together. It says this, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. For as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So friends, starting last week and continuing to this week, we see that God, through Paul, has revealed this mystery. That this hardness has come upon the Gentiles, and yet in Christ they have been brought near, brought into the promises of Abraham and the promises of God. And in this great mystery, we also see that as a result of this, a hardness has come upon Israel. And yet this is only for a time. As the Gentiles are coming in, that God has every intention of bringing the Jews in as well. Friends, I want us to notice something. Paul reveals why he is telling them this. And I think this is massively important for us moving forward in this text. So, Notice that again in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. For starters, as we jump into this text, I want us to take a moment to consider this word mystery. Uh, in fact, throughout church history, we've seen ideas like this abused by individuals. They've taken a word like mystery, and they've used it to conform this idea that there is a kind of an unknowable truth about God that hasn't been revealed to just anybody. That there's this great kind of mystical truth that's out there, and only the select few, the most wise of the wise, special of special, who know how to tap into this reality have access to it. If we're going to be frank and honest, many people have used that kind of ideology to abuse others in the process. But friends, when Paul uses this word mystery, ironically... It's the exact opposite of what we just described. Paul is not saying mystery as in some kind of mystical notion that is unattainable to the average person, but throughout the New Testament, we see Paul's usage of mystery means this. There was a time when God's plan was unknown to all peoples, and yet now in this time it has been made clear to everyone. This is what Paul has in mind here. He says there was a time in God's plan of salvation throughout history where no one has known this, but now in this moment we have seen that this is God's intention. A hardening has come upon the Jews so that the Gentiles will come in, and in turn, 
the Jews will again come back to the Lord as well. Friends, I want us to take a moment and consider what Paul's intention is in revealing this mystery in the first place. He states that clearly at the very beginning. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight. Friends, from the get-go, Paul is saying that the reason I'm telling you this is so that you would not be boastful. The reason I have revealed this mysterious and glorious salvation to you is so that you would not have pride. See, it's Paul's intention to tell, a Jew, to tell the Gentile audience in this church of Rome that he's saying to them, you have not been chosen to receive this glorious benefit because somehow you had achieved a greater status than the Jewish people. It is not because you had something more to offer that I decided to punt on the Jews and move my affection over towards the Israelite or over towards the Gentiles. In fact, he's saying quite the opposite. He said, in fact, I'm using you as well to draw them back to myself. And friends, I think this posture is massively important for us as we consider how are we to respond as those who have received the glorious salvation offered through Jesus Christ in our lives. Friends, the appropriate response as we see in this passage is humility. I invite you to consider the fact that nobody in this room stands here today having chosen the place they were born, the parents they were born into, or even the circumstances they found themselves in upon doing so. In fact, we can see this thread of grace throughout all of our lives for those of us who have come into the saving grace of Jesus Christ. I think if we looked back and we considered, all of us would admit that the circumstances that initiated that faith, that that gospel that was proclaimed to us in many times, in many ways, was done so without our seeking it out. Perhaps you're like myself who grew up in a home where the things of God were cherished from an early age with a mother and father who proclaimed Christ amongst my brothers and myself from an early age in our lives where we were exposed to the goodness of God and His glorious salvation in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you're in the exact opposite boat of that. Maybe from an early age you found yourself not knowing or even being adverse to the kingdom of God. And yet God in his kindness and in the right time sent the right men and women into your life so that the gospel would fall fresh upon you and that you would hear it and that your heart would be stirred so that you would believe upon Christ. Friends, I ask you, in both of those scenarios, where is there room for boasting? Which one of those scenarios initiates pride to well up in ourselves? The answer is neither. In both cases, we see that God in His graciousness has reached out to us in the midst of our sin and drawn us near. And friends, this must be the posture we take as the people of God in a rebellious and sinful world. Friends, I recognize that the times that we find ourselves in and the days we now live in are difficult. There is turmoil and strife and anger in all directions. I myself must confess and admit that it is easy for me to have extremely strong hot takes and opinions on political and social issues. And yet, friends, as the people of God, we are to be marked by a people who are humbled by the grace that we have received. Not as those who stand in contention over the world, you foolish mortals who have somehow stumbled into this disobedience, but as men and women 
who were born rebel sinners ourselves and have been extended the grace of God's kindness in Jesus Christ and who humbly and joyfully ask and plead with others to join us in this faith. Emmaus, let this be the posture that marks how we engage the world around us, how we interact with unbelievers in our midst, not as those who have been set apart as the elite elect, but as those who are humble recipients of God's grace, eager to tell others where they might find this joy. This has to be our posture. As we continue to look at this passage, we notice that Paul's assertion of this partial hardening that has come upon the Jews was God's kindness to the Gentiles. What a great mystery. And yet we see that he's not done with the Jewish people. In fact, let's read on in this passage again and see that he's only begun in getting started. Verses 26 and 27. He says this, And in this way all Israel will be saved. For as it is written, The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So there's a lot packed into this sentence that we just read here. And I think uh, there is a little bit of a danger we could find ourselves missing the forest for the trees if we're not careful. But I do think it's very important for us to look at this passage and pull out some of the individual parts. I think the implications there are too important for us to leave them ambiguous. In fact, the very integrity and nature of the gospel is at stake. So I want to take a moment and pull some of these phrases one by one out of this sentence particularly that phrase, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. I think it's worthy of our time to break some of these parts down and make sure we're reading them cohesively together. The first word I want to pull out of there is Israel. So throughout Scripture, we've seen that the word Israel kind of has a multi-tiered meaning. In fact, we've seen examples of this phrase used not to describe an ethnic people group or a country, but more generally describe the people of God. So we've, we've seen this pattern used uh, in both the Old and New Testament. In fact, uh, we saw it just a couple of weeks ago in Romans 9, verse 6, where it said, Not all descendants of Abraham are descendants of Abraham. Not all native Israelites are Israelites. So what Paul is implying there is that there is a people of God that is outside of the ethnic categories of being a Jewish person, that these rights and blessings of Abraham have been given to Jews and Gentiles alike now. However, with all that being said, I think when we look at the context of our passage here, as we've been studying chapter 11, we've seen that clearly Paul is laying a contrast here between ethnic Gentiles and ethnic Jews or Israelites. And he seems to, it'd be very bizarre for him to just change that all of a sudden in this verse. So I think the safest thing we can assume in reading this is that Paul is talking about ethnic Jewish people when he's discussing this group in this passage. He's talking about those born of Jewish heritage. The next question that comes vitally important to this is, what does he mean by saved then? Because it would be disastrous for us to miss this. For you see, there could be a sentiment, and some have expressed it, that Jewish, ethnically Jewish individuals have a, a pass from God, that the promises of Abraham have excluded them from the new covenant, and Christ as the only means by which salvation is obtained. And they will be kind of grafted in in spite of all of that's gone on. They have a different set of rules that they're operating off of. Friends, this is not the case. In fact, we see this clearly in our passage as we look in verse 26 and 27. It says, The deliverer will come from Zion. 
and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And in this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sin. Friends, this promised deliverer of Zion, who will come and take away the ungodliness of Jacob, of Israel, is none other than the God-man, Jesus Christ. The same Jesus who has come to remove sin of the Gentiles is the same Jesus that must be uh, approached by the Jews in order to have restoration with the Father. There is no alternate means. There is no alternate timeline or other set. The way to the Father is through the Son, just as we saw in chapter 10 last week. We come to the Father through hearing and believing in Jesus Christ. And this applies to the Israelites as well. So, friends, in light of this, we'd like to take a moment to consider the last portion here. And I'm going to take these two things together uh, in tandem because I think it helps uh, with the way that I'll be interpreting them, though I will give a little bit of context that uh, there might be other ways to do this. So, uh, the next thing we're going to ask is, how is this going to happen? And what in the world he means by the word all? So, let's start with this word all. Is Paul implying here that every born Jew throughout history will be saved? Is this the implication of this text? Throughout the Bible, we see that this term all oftentimes is used in two ways. Specifically, it's used in ways to look at individuals. If I say all the people in this room are invited after work to go eat dinner somewhere on me. I'm sorry, I cannot do that. So please do not take me up on that offer. If I was to say that, it would be pretty sneaky of me to say, when I meant all, what I meant was only a couple of you, right? So we know it has that meaning. But in this case, there's also an instance in which we see the word all is used to encompass groups of people. It's used in a, a group setting. And as we've seen throughout chapter 11, Paul has used this uh, technique to almost formulate this possibility of two different groups of Jews. He has pointed to the fact that there is a ethnically Jewish group of people who have currently been set aside as a remnant who believe on faith in Jesus Christ. They are in the kingdom of God as brothers and sisters, heirs to Abraham's promises through their faith in Jesus Christ. We also see what he set apart for us in this passage, though, is there is a majority of ethnically born Jewish individuals who currently find themselves like the older brother, hardened towards God's salvation, standing outside the camp. And in doing this language, and in saying all, Paul is not saying all individually, but he's saying all as in both. All the Jews, the hardened and the faithful remnant, will come to Christ. He's using it to distinguish both groups will find themselves restored to the Father through Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our final piece of how, when this will happen. Uh, and truly, this is a question that really only history can reveal to us. So any speculation we have at this point would tend to lend itself to be just that, a little bit of speculation. But with that being said, I think it'll be worth our time to look at and answer that question. It seems to be there are two possibilities of what he means by this. Some, some would read this and say that over time in history, this promised remnant that Paul has talked about is going to continue to be there and continue growing and growing until it comes to the end of history and we see that a massive group of, of Jewish-born native Israelites find themselves placing their faith in Jesus Christ. Certainly, I don't want to spend too much time trying to deconstruct that. I think that would be a more than faithful interpretation of the passage. 
However, for my purposes, based on this fact that we've seen Paul delineate between these two groups, that there is a all and that there is a faithful remnant already, we know that they've been saved, but there is also a hardened majority. I, I take this passage to say that there is a point in history when we do not know, but we will see this hardening removed from native Jews, ethnic Israelites, and they will come back and embrace the promises of their father through Jesus Christ. Just as Pastor Sam was preaching last week, a time is coming where native and ethnic Israelite men and women will realize that the way they can be most faithful to their fathers, Abraham and Moses, is by crying out upon Jesus Christ. The way they can be faithful to the covenant blessings of their forefathers is to do so by trusting in the Father through Jesus Christ alone. So friends, in all this we see that God has made a promise that he has not forgotten about ethnic Israel. He has every intention of bringing in the Gentiles, but he has every intention of bringing in the Jews as well. And he will not fail in this endeavor. We see... Paul doubling down on this in verses 28 through 32. I want us to read quickly verse 28. He says this, As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. If I could be transparent for a moment, I have uh, wrestled with that phrase quite a bit in studying for this passage. What does he mean by Enemies for their sake. How, how does that work? And I uh, hope it will be a blessing to you as it was to me, but in, in studying the scriptures and in considering history, I was reminded that so often God in his great manifold wisdom and grace in this mysterious way has oftentimes displayed his mercy all the more brilliantly against the backdrop of human rebellion. In fact, many of the moments in history we're most drawn to where we see God showing up to bless his people are put in contrast to a, a group of people in rebellion against him. I invite you to consider for a moment uh, the book of Exodus provides us a great example of this, right? We have the Israelite people subjected to cruel slavery under the Egyptian Pharaoh and his overlords. And as the people of Israel cry out to Yahweh God, they ask him to save them. And it says their cries were heard. And God shows up and he sends a broken vessel named Moses to speak on his behalf. And we see that in the midst of the most powerful nation in the world, God puts on full display his immense power and might as he shows mercy to meek and tiny enslaved Israel and he exploits the powerful gods of Egypt and makes the mighty Pharaoh look as a worm. So certainly we've seen this. We've seen this play out the opposite way as well, haven't we, though? I invite you to consider moments like the Babylonian exile where the sins of the Israelite people were so egregious and stacked up before the face of God that he kicked them out of the promised land. And they allowed and sent a foreign ruler from the Babylonians to remove them from the land and to destroy the city of Jerusalem and carry many of them off to Babylon. And yet, friends, recall and see what takes place there. In this case, Israel's rebellion was Babylon's benefit. 
King Nebuchadnezzar got a front seat into the mighty hand, the mighty saving hand of the Lord God of Israel when he saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walk out of that fiery furnace without even a scorch or a stain of, of fire upon them. He was forced to reckon with the fact that God alone saves. And friends, this came about as a result of Israel's rebellion. I invite you to consider a woman like Ruth who grew up in a pagan Gentile land like Moab. And yet we see during the time of Judges when there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own sight. That should scare you, by the way, if you uh, hear that phrase. But as the Lord sent a family to go look for food from Israel to Moab, and their sons took upon for themselves wives, a woman named Ruth, who was outside of God's covenant people, comes to be a part of the family of God. In fact, so much so that we see that she is actually the great, 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 great grandma of Jesus. Don't check me on how many greats that's actually supposed to be. I didn't count it beforehand. But you see the point in this, that God used the rebellion of others to show his great mercy upon the faithful. And friends, in this we find comfort, that even in the midst of circumstances like we find ourselves in, so often it is in the midst of these harsh times that we find God to be great. That we see with eyes unstained by sin just how good the Lord is. And it causes us to cry out to Him in faith. I want us to notice the second part of that text where it says, But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So currently they stand because of their dismissal of Christ Jesus in the gospel. They stand as enemies for the sake of the Gentiles. But it says, as regards to the election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. What does Paul have in mind here? Is he saying that somehow the righteousness of the forefathers of Israel has bound God to uh, this people? Is he saying that when you consider the life of a man like Abraham and Moses, somehow God is now obligated to do something on behalf of this people as a result? By no means. This is not what I mean by this passage. In fact, we'll look at it here in a moment, but God is bound by no man. There is no one who has his ear telling him what he must do. There is no one he owes his debt to, that he must act in accordance to their will. But God is unfettered by these things. In fact, uh, for those of you who were journeying with us earlier this year, you might remember, or last year, excuse me, 2020 was a long year, but uh, you might remember as we went through the prophets uh, in the book of Ezekiel, as God was speaking to the city of Jerusalem and telling them, your, your impending destruction is nigh. He said something striking in Ezekiel 14.4. God tells the Israelite people, he said, even if Daniel and Noah and Job took up residence in Jerusalem, it would not save this city. Friends, think about that. Three of the most faithful in the face of adversity, righteous men in all of history, their imputed righteousness is not enough to save this hardened and obstinate people. God said, I'll pull them out of the city, but I would still destroy Jerusalem. And so what we see is that God is not bound by any man-made invention for him to show mercy upon the Israelites. There is nothing in them, past or present, that would tie his hands together where he would say, you know what, I don't want to do this, but I have to. 
It's not one of those circumstances where perhaps some of you have found yourself at work where there's a guy who's really rude, really lazy, never does anything, and you wonder why he stays around, and you find out that his dad owns the building, and so uh, they can't get rid of him. This is not how God is acting towards the Israelites. But what we see in verse 29 reveals to us this is out of his unearned, undeserved mercy. Verse 29 says, For the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable. Friends, outside of emotion or circumstance, God has chosen in his great love and infinite mercy that he would bless both the Gentile, but also, as we see, the ethnic Jew. And there is no thing that will hinder him from doing it. It is out of his promise that he has said that he will deliver for himself this people. And no Prisoner of the moment will keep him from changing that. He's not bound to the emotional ties of the moment or, well, you were good this day, so I thought I might do it, but you're kind of a jerk this day, so I'm not going to. God does not operate on this plane. When God sets out to do something, he accomplishes it in fullness to the uttermost. And friends, this is where our confidence must lie, that God will accomplish all that he has promised to do in Christ Jesus. Consider this in verse 30 through 32. He says, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Friends, what a mysterious plan of salvation this is. In the depth of God's wisdom and kindness and mercy, he has made it so and chosen it that we would find ourselves seeing the goodness of God, not only through his blessing upon us, but also through the pain of our own rebellion. We see this posture throughout history where God has chosen to initiate the salvation of his people through the rebellion of others. And yet in that rebellion we see God has used to show his faithfulness and mercy so that he might woo the rebel back to himself. Oh, what a confound and glorious truth this is, church. For you see, we cannot deny the reality in front of us when we read this passage, this beautiful arc of history, that it is in the midst of our rebellion against God that God's unexpected mercy intervenes on our behalf. Consider that it was while you were still sinners that Christ died for the ungodly. It was not any form of postured righteousness that draw him near, and yet we see that all men suffer a similar fate. We are rebel enemies of the rightful ruler of this world, and yet the mystery, the glory of the gospel is that in the midst of this, God has occasioned those circumstances that he might display his glory all the more so in showing mercy on the undeserving in offering up his grace on the one who deserved it the least. Friends, this is the place of every race, tribe, and tongue. We have been formally marked by a sinful rebellion, and yet God has extended his mercy in Jesus Christ. Friends, this is where identity can be found. This is where an unshakable foundation lies. Friends, in our quest for unity, where else would it be found than in this glorious truth? 
that all men and women have found themselves in rebellious disobedience to God, and yet God has shown mercy to all through the God-man, Jesus Christ. Church, this is why the gospel must be of first and utmost importance in our public ministry and mission. Friends, we could find thousands of great things to do that would enrich and enhance the lives of the world around us, and they would be worthy endeavors to impart. But if they are done so without the truth of Jesus Christ, this glorious gospel, ultimately we see they'll be in vain. That's why this must be of first importance to us as we engage the world around us, as we are humbled by this reality that the grace of God is drawn near to us, the rebellious younger brother or the rebellious older brother, and yet Christ is in his manifold grace and wisdom has drawn us near to himself. And friends, in this we joyfully and gladly invite others, men and women from every tribe and tongue, to join us in this celebration to find hope and peace and life everlasting in this truth. Friends, what a glorious mystery that has been presented before us. It would be remiss of us not to acknowledge that as we have gone through this section of Scripture, chapters 9 through 11, as we look back and have listened to these sermons and read these texts, likely all of us have had a moment where we've read something and said, whoa, how does that work? Or, huh, why do it that way? And yet, friends, we see Paul wrestling with similar things himself. A man who cried out, oh, that I would be cursed that my brothers and sisters, my ethnic Jewish brothers and sisters would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And yet we see when he comes to the end of this passage, he is not a man embittered towards God. We see that he is not a prideful, boasting, arrogant man, but we see he's a worshiper. And friends, this is our posture. Let's read this as we conclude our passage. It says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is my plea with you today. As we come across passages like the ones we've been studying for the last several weeks, as we engage in hard truth and realities... Let us start with this posture that maybe, just maybe, God knows more than we do. That maybe, just maybe, that God has a better plan than we have concocted in our own minds. Friends, we notice Paul's reflection in this passage. How unsearchable are his judgments, inscrutable his ways, Who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Christian, this should give us confidence this morning when we consider the fact that there is no outside voice or influence in God's ear telling him how to act. There is no seedy man or object behind the scenes who has somehow found a way to trick God into 
their debt so that his actions are now tainted by their will. We see God owes no debt to no man. There is no counselor in his ear instructing him how he might do things. So if we start from this premise and the premise that God is good, then we can find hope and trust in the fact that when life circumstances around us appear to be unfair or harsh, when pain and disappointment and abuse and these things fall upon our laps, we can trust that God in His infinite kindness and mercy is doing something that we can't understand or fathom that, that is for His glory and for our good. And we can rest in that without knowing all the answers. I know that seems hard to say. In our Western context, so often it's easy for us to develop a mentality where unless we can take something and break it down to the smallest quintessimal parts and explain it in an orderly fashion at all times and all places, then it's either false or it's useless to us. But friends, this is not the case. God is not working on the plane that you tell him he must work upon. To God's glory and our benefit, so oftentimes we see that usage of things like science and logic actually do enrich and enhance our, our worship to the Lord as we see his orderly and structured world, as we see how he operates, and, and we get the joy of seeing what he was doing in certain circumstances. But friend, this can't be our hope. There's a sentiment that's often expressed that when we get to heaven, that everything that's ever happened to us will make sense. I tend to think there's definitely some truth to that. I think that when we are ushered into the presence of our glorious God with the saints throughout time and history, there will be a, a reckoning of sorts in which we can see on full display the, the sheer brilliance of God's plan as we see how the circumstances in our life initiated faith in someone else's life, how it actually was the ballast that kept us on the path, even though we didn't realize it at the time. But friends, I think there are two ways that we can approach this mentality. And uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to borrow from two fairly famous uh, sources of fiction, uh, Chronicles of Narnia and The Wizard of Oz. So uh, Wizard of Oz, I have to borrow from the movie. I haven't read the book, so I don't want to mislead you there. But uh, for those of you who have seen it, at the end of The Wizard of Oz, what happens? This merry gang of travelers finds their way into the Emerald City. They're ushered into the presence of the great and powerful Oz, and they're overwhelmed by his sheer awesomeness and terror, right? He has booming voice and thunderous presence. And they're terrified. How dare you approach me as if you are anything but mere mortals in my presence? And yet what happens? The little dog Toto runs over to the corner of the room, right? pulls the curtain back, and we see that Oz wasn't so great and powerful. In fact, we're left to see that he's actually quite ordinary in many ways. That his actions and his plans are easily explained with no trouble. And yet, friends, this is not how it will be with God. To borrow from C.S. Lewis in his final book of the Narnia series, The Last Battle, we see he describes the new heavens and the new earth as being not reducing what we thought was this great and ominous picture down to a little old man in the corner, but we see this picture of going further up and further in. We're more overwhelmed and surprised by the goodness of God. We're more impressed and amazed at the manifold wisdom and mercy that he's given to us. And these things are inexhaustible to us. We can't mind them enough. We just keep going further up and further in. Each revelation does not make God look more 
plain, but more glorious. So friends, let this be our posture today as we leave this section, as we leave a text like this. May we become those who are worshipers, content to trust that God is doing something even in the midst of circumstances that are difficult or challenging for us to accept or explain. And friends, we'll find joy everlasting in this place that we can trust that God is doing something beyond what we can comprehend, and yet it is for our good and for his glory. It's in light of this, I want us to consider three quick pastoral charges on our, as we conclude our time together. The first one is this, uh, to both the believer and the non-believer, I, I charge you to come to God in awe and worship. And let us not be those who become bitter or prideful when we see the plans of God unfolding around us, when we experience the joys of his salvation. Let us be those who are humbled by it. Let it initiate within us a desire to worship him all the more, not worship ourselves. Friends, this is the appropriate response, that we would come to him in awe of his inscrutable ways, his unsearchable wisdom and riches. The second charge I give to you, to the believer, is to come to others in humility because of that. Church, I am aware that in our current circumstances, many, many definitions no longer mean what they used to mean. In fact, there will be times that genuine and true love and kindness are labeled as hatred. But friends, the world standard is not to be how we engage it. So friends, let us come with a humility. Not as the judges of the world but as the recipients of grace, eager to tell of what Christ has done on our behalf. And friends, let this be the posture that drives us forward into mission. As worshipers in awe of the great and mighty wisdom of God, humbled by what he's done for us, begging that all men and women would join us in this. Finally, I would be remiss if I didn't request to you today unbeliever in the room to come to Jesus Christ. As we started this passage talking about the older brother and the younger brother, and uh, in my, my brief years of experience, I have seen that uh, these categories truly do explain life around us quite well. I had the uh, pleasure of going to northern India in my college years. And ironically, I saw many older brothers and many younger brothers while I was there. For the younger brothers, these were men who were jobless, living in the foothills of the Himalayas, sleeping till 3 o'clock in the afternoon, coming to a basketball court to play basketball for two hours, going home to eat dinner, and then spending the rest of the night out drinking, partying, carousing. Friends, during the morning time, I would come across a very different group of people, older brothers, men who had committed themselves to the Tibetan mosques, not mosques, excuse me, Tibetan temples, Tibetan Buddhist monks who believed that their acts of piety, their chants, their prayer wills that they would spend every single day would somehow bend God's favor towards them, that the divine would be forced to reckon with them and act kindly upon them based on these activities that they had done. And yet, friends, in both cases, we see that both the older brother and the younger brother were lost. 
They were telling the Father to bless them on their own terms, and yet we see that we come to the Father only through the Son, Jesus Christ. Friends, perhaps you're here today and you're in one of those categories. Maybe you have chased after the world for a long time and it's starting to taste like pig food to you. I invite you to come to the Father's table. Even the lowliest man such as myself at the Father's table finds better than the world has to offer. Friends, perhaps maybe you're here today and you're like the older brother. You think that your ideals, the platforms that you stand with, the voting policies that you hold, the hashtags that you have used on Twitter, you think that these things, in essence, have shown yourself to be a morally superior person. You think that you have initiated and earned God's favor through these actions. And yet we see that there is no law or righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. All men stand condemned by the law. And yet in Christ Jesus we see that he has become a curse on our behalf, that he has taken the penalty of the lawbreaker on his body and he has purchased our freedom on the cross when he died. So friends, whether you find yourself today as an older brother or a younger brother, I call upon you to cry out to Christ Jesus today and he will draw you both in. Friends, this is the glorious joy of our passage today is that God has every intention of saving both. The Gentile and the Jew. The older and the younger brother will be drawn near to the Father through Jesus Christ. So cry out to him today, I beg you. And there you'll find life more abundant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a, a joyous occasion for us as we have had the opportunity to gaze into but a glimpse of your manifold wisdom. Lord, I imagine for some in the room there are different reactions to these realities. And yet, Lord, I pray that in your kindness you would soften our hearts and you would help us to see your, your goodness and your glory in this great mystery of salvation that you'd offered up to us, Lord. Lord, we recognize the glory of this gospel is that it comes unexpected and undeserved by each of us. None of us sought it out. None of us twisted your arm and demanded it. None of us earned it. And yet it was in the height of our rebellion against you that we deserved punishment, Lord, that Christ came and purchased freedom. Lord, we deserve to be outlaws, and yet Christ has made us sons and daughters. Lord, we were rebels, and yet you have drawn us near as cherished friends. Lord, I pray that that would be the mark of each person in this room, that we would Rest and trust and hope in you, even in the moments where we don't understand it, even if it comes as a painful reality as we see others walking in rebellion, close friends, even, even sons, daughters, Lord, who are walking in rebellion against you, Lord, that it would not occasion for us to be bitter, Lord, but it would bring within us a humility that we would all the more faithfully proclaim Christ crucified to those around us. But I pray that you would give us that posture even now as we prepare to leave this place as a Humble worshipers. Lord, in your name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.